0: Good afternoon and thank you for being with us on this rather sunny Tuesday afternoon. We have another busy show to get to, but we are starting off talking once again about the update with Stanley Park and the vote that has now taken place at the Vancouver Park Board. And Angela Hare joins us now, ABC Park Board Commissioner. Commissioner Hare, thank you so much for being back with us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: I know we uh, talked a lot about the options and what was on the table to be decided on. And uh, we know that the board has gone with option C. But can you explain exactly uh, if there were amendments or what exactly was voted on and what is going to happen in the park?
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we voted for option C with an amendment where um, we're going to be keeping uh, other street parking at Lumberman's Arch. And um, further, we've also uh, made amendments so that the staff can come back after um, studies and um, connecting with stakeholders, including business people, um, the elderly uh, users and, and and people who bike as well, and um, come back with a report on um, what's best to do um, come November 2023. And with, with a permanent bike solution uh, of summer of 2024.
0: And, and so why do you think that this is the best option?
1: Well, as, uh, as we campaign with ABC, we had promised to take out the, the temporary bike um, lane from pre-COVID. And um, this is the best solution because it's, um, first of all, we're taking out the, the temporary uh, structure of the bike lane. But we're also um, considering some uh, staff recommendations where there are certain points of the park which we which may be safety hazards or where safety would be of concern for bike users and, and 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 vehicle operators and including pedestrians, right? So that's why we thought it was the best one. We we, we work well with the staff and we respect what they have to say. And again, um, we're taking out the temporary nature of this bike lane and just keeping a few points and that might be a hazard for might that might, might be a safety concern for. Um, the users of this um, park.
0: And so looking at uh, the description of option C, so returns most of park drive to two-lane vehicle traffic with some exceptions for safety and accessibility, Uh, defers a future permanent bike lane to longer-term plan as it would need to be installed in two major phases. And and then it also says under that one that uh, with potential for a future permanent bike lane to be delivered when funding is available in future capital plans. So does that kind of leave it up in the air, or is it like you said, planning for summer of 2024?
1: No, we're planning for summer of 2024. We, we, I take that very seriously, and so does so do my, my colleagues. So we are, we understand that there's a safety concern for people who do bike on on the street, right, rather than over by the ocean uh, or the seawall. So we take that seriously, and we are considering that.
0: I wanted to, to play for you just uh, quickly. Uh, this was uh, Lucy Maloney, who I, I'm sure you've heard from at park board meetings, and she's a, a one, part of the group, but uh, love the lane. And uh, w- one of the group members that, that said they were very disappointed by choosing this option.
2: Um, ABC last night chose the least favorable option for cyclists out of the three that staff presented them with. And uh, they amended it to make it even worse for cyclists. So, uh, I'm just trying to make sense of it now. uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to some more explanation from ABC as to how they're going to make this work and meet their commitments to install a permanent bike lane on Stanley Park Drive. Uh, It could take years. Uh,
0: And I think they're they're really just kicking the can down the road with this decision. Uh, So what do you say to those who are disappointed or who were hoping for a different outcome?
1: You know, with with the with the decision that we made, not everyone's going to be happy. There's people that want us to rip everything out, and they're not happy either. That's not our job as commissioners. We're trying to make the best decision for everybody, and also a balanced decision as well. That's why we're keeping certain points of the Stanley Park bike lane, and uh, maybe it's not as much as she wanted or her um, her supporters, but we're trying to make a balanced decision and. Let's not forget that Stanley Park is an inclusive park. It, in, it should include everyone. Accessibility should be for everyone. And originally, the bike lane that was, was put in place was a temporary. Temporary bike lane, that's, that's the key word. So we promised to take the temporary bike lane out, and that's where we're, we're headed towards. And we're going to come up with a better solution, a better infrastructure that's not going to just last for this lifetime, but several lifetimes, and for hopefully our children and their children's children as well.
0: I wanted to talk to you a bit about the price tag with this as well. Of the three options that were on the table, this is the the lowest one coming in at around $330,000. But why does it cost so much to remove a temporary bike lane?
1: Okay, because what, what happened was originally when the bike lane was put in, I believe it was mostly cones, and then they started putting in concrete barriers. Let's not forget their signage that they switched up as well. So to go back to pre-COVID standards or infrastructure, there's going to be new signages put in. Those concrete barriers and some of them are permanent structures have to be taken out as well. It takes time and money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So what do you anticipate then? This was also the option that was to start late spring 2023. Um, So when do you anticipate these changes will be made and be completed?
1: Right. So we've given them the, the direction to be completed by May 2023. It does take time, and um, it's better to give them, give the staff, and um, give the staff time to get this done rather than to overestimate um, and say do it right away. I want we want it done properly. Like um, we're not in a pandemic situation anymore. Let's just get it done properly and move forward. So yeah, May 2023.
0: And do you anticipate this will also help with the bottlenecks because there's been a lot of uh, discussion as well and concern about the access points, mainly for vehicles and the exit points of the park, that those have become real bottleneck points. Do, do you think that this addresses that or more needs to be done, say, if we're looking at Beach Avenue and we're looking at some of the other areas around the park?
1: That's a great question.
0: Um, yeah, I do believe it's going to take care of most, uh, bo- most bottleneck areas. As
1: uh, in, in regards to beach, I've out of our jurisdiction. But what we did promise was that the Stanley Park, uh Re-Bike Lane would be taken out and we'd go back to pre-COVID standards. And we have followed through with that. And so, yeah, so uh, it, it's taking care of the, the situation. And we are watching it. We're watching what's, how traffic is flowing, what's going on and moving. So this is not, nothing in life is absolute. We're, we're watching how traffic is going and if if we might have to make changes or adjustments later on as well.
0: All right. And just to get back to, I understand what you're saying that these things take time and, and it costs money mm-hmm. to take out concrete and to resign a park and that. Do you think though, that that people deserve a breakdown of the costs? Because I understand it, it is expensive, but it still does seem that $330,000 is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, at the meeting, they did have a breakdown. So they
1: did, um, give that breakdown um, quite extensively. And
0: so um, I believe it's on their website as well. All right, Commissioner, thank you so much for your time and uh, for joining us once again to talk more about this. Appreciate it.
1: No, I- I'm really excited and thank you for having me. Um, it, like I said, it's it's not going to make everyone happy, but we're trying to do the right thing. And, and we have uh, every citizen in mind of Vancouver. Thank you.
0: Well, as you know, there have been some stories of amazing rescues, children, adults that have been under the rubble for days after the earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria and being rescued and being so thankful. However, there are also many stories of sadness with the death toll now in the tens of thousands in that part of the world. Well, the Canadian Red Cross has been on the ground and has been doing its part in helping with the recovery. So we are checking in now with Brianne England, who is the head of the Middle East region with the Canadian Red Cross. Brianne, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thanks for having the Red Cross today, Jill. Well, it's such an important story to continue talking about and seeing still some of the miraculous Uh, rescues, as well as the heartbreaking discoveries. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Red Cross and, and what you've been seeing or what you saw on the ground?
2: Sure. It has been an absolutely catastrophic situation. Two earthquakes, as well as multiple aftershocks. And what we're seeing is search and rescue teams have been operational for the last eight days. But each day that passes, hope is dimming more and more for survivors And the humanitarian response is also looking at helping the people who have been displaced. They've lost their homes. They have no protection from the elements. And unfortunately, in this context, in this location, it's unseasonably cold right now. So people are sleeping in the streets and exposed to snow and freezing rain, and that can be life and death. The humanitarian work also focuses on trying to provide them with hot meals, warm meals, trying to provide clean water, sanitation, And support some of the psychosocial aspects uh, of what they may have just been through. And that's just for the next foreseeable future. There's also going to be longer term needs that people uh, will require humanitarian assistance for in the coming months and years.
0: And when we look at the death toll, I mean, the numbers just, it's its so difficult to even imagine with the death toll uh, going past 37,000 people uh, looking at uh, both the Turkish lives lost uh, as well as lives lost in Syria. Uh, and you mentioned as well, some of the challenges for people, uh, survivors who have lost everything. Uh, how do you even begin, though, to 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 try and help people even in the short term, like you said, in these, these cold conditions? Uh, how do you even start to, and begin to 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 bring that support to help get people to 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 the point where then we can start something a bit more permanent.
2: It's it is a complex operation. Um, what I can say is the Red Cross, Red Crescent was on the ground. That that's how we work. We have local volunteers at community level who they unfortunately were impacted by by the earthquakes, but they were also able to respond. And then they are supported and strengthened by the international Red Cross, Red Crescent, with whatever they need. Finances, experts, uh, relief supplies. And, and so that's what we're doing right now. And our focus is on life-saving. But, Jill, you mentioned a, a good point, And I think that is one of our key messages here. This is not just about these next few days. This is not just about two earthquakes. I've been traveling to, to Syria multiple times a year for the last decade, also to Turkey. And the needs before this earthquake were already unimaginable. You have 90% of the population in Syria below the poverty line. People have been displaced not once, not twice, sometimes six or seven times because of the conflict. COVID pandemic when you're displaced is very difficult to manage as a family. We also have a recent cholera outbreak. People have lost their livelihoods and there's an economic decline, so what money they do bring in no longer has the same value. It's been absolutely devastating before the earthquakes. And then you add the situation onto it and it, it's, it's unimaginable.
0: And with your perspective too and with your background, having worked on the ground before this earthquake hits, I know there's been a lot of talk as well about the death toll is is much higher in Turkey, but even trying to get aid and to get help to people in Syria who are also suffering because of the situation already unfolding there. How difficult is it to reach those parts of Syria and help people there?
2: We we do envision that the death toll may increase because in some of these locations, with it being hard to access, there isn't the proper machinery or the equipment. I, I'm hearing stories from my colleagues on the ground who are using shovels or literally their bare hands to try and dig people out from the rubble. So you can imagine that that will take time to, to complete that. Um, we do have access in Syria. We have access in Turkey as a Red Cross Red Crescent. We are a neutral, independent and impartial organization, and that allows us access to... Um, and, and so that's what we're trying to do right now: is save lives and then support these individuals in the coming months and, and years to come.
0: And from what you've seen in the past as well, how would you kind of describe the the magnitude of the destruction and what what you saw on the ground in Turkey, and compare it even to other earthquakes or other disasters?
2: Imagine it being just after 4 a.m. in the evening. Um, So so it was just after 4.15. People are asleep. Their children are in their beds. No one's awake. And then these earthquakes happen. And the earthquakes themselves were not for an extremely long period of time, but they've devastated lives and generations to come. And, And so to wake up to this, to have to flee your home, to have to gather your family, to be exposed to the elements, it's been absolutely shocking for people.
0: And, and we're still, uh, again, like I mentioned, it's, I saw the footage of the baby that was pulled out of the rubble and the rescue worker kisses mm-hmm. the baby on the forehead. And it's, I can't imagine anybody seeing that and not uh, reacting to that. But at the same time, there was a story earlier today as well that a Canadian woman, her, she just found out that her twin sister uh, didn't make it, that she was killed in the quake. It's just, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to, to even comprehend what people are going through. Yeah,
2: I think there are two points to that. There are the hopeful stories. I, I heard of my colleagues, um, several individuals who are with the, the Red Cross in Turkey, and they were able to save a mother and her child. The child was maybe six. And as they put the the baby girl or the child on the stretcher, this had been maybe six years of them trying to, to rescue these two people. The young girl ra- raises her hand and waves to them and says, hi. And they all just broke down in tears and laughter with joy. Um, And it was a really sweet moment. But there are so many people in Canada who have connections to Syria and Turkey, whether that's family lineage, maybe they're from there, maybe they've been resettled to Canada, or or maybe they were some of the families who helped to resettle uh, people to Canada in 2016. Although it's far geographically, I don't think Syria and Turkey are far to Canadians um, by heart. And many of us are are affected by this personally. And I just want to express my condolences to your listeners if you have been impacted directly by this crisis.
0: No, you're right. There are so many people with connections with family members, and uh, that that are 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 watching so carefully, trying to to see what will happen next. Uh, Brian, I know that the the federal government is offering to match. I think it's up to ten million dollars in donations to uh, Canadian Red Cross, to their partners as well, as to your partners on the ground to help people uh, that have been impacted by this. How important is that as far as fundraising and and getting that money to that region?
2: we do welcome the the match i think what's important right now is that although generous in spirit in-kind donations of clothes or food or release supplies can often become a burden once they land because they need warehousing they need inventory they need mapping they need logistics support sometimes the equipment isn't available there has to be assessment so it can be a burden to the first responders on the ground and in these times of natural disasters we do encourage people in Canada to give financially, and that allows the first responders on the ground to really know the needs, know the context, know what can be procured locally, and get assistance as rapidly as possible to people in need, and so if any of your listeners uh, are in a position that they are able to contribute, um, we encourage them to go to redcross.ca. There is a dedicated public appeal for this situation, and the monies raised would be helping with What I've just explained to you, the immediate response or life-saving interventions, the healthcare needs to come, the shelter needs to come, the relief to come. Um, This is not a, a quick operation.
0: And when you talk about that as well, already having crews on the ground for other reasons, but do you even get an idea or know, dealing with a disaster of this magnitude, how long crews will remain on the ground?
2: Well, we have been in in Syria since uh, 2013, um, and we've been partnering in Turkey for for multiple years as well. But this is going to be a multi-year humanitarian response, unfortunately.
0: All right, Brianne, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for talking more about this and for bringing your perspective to this. I appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jill, for having the Red Cross.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the Mayor's Council and the TransLink Mayor's Council has been asking for a formal request or has made the formal request to the federal government. This is to renew a partnership with the region and, in fact, bring more money into transit infrastructure, into transit spending. And joining us to talk more about what this might look like is Brad West, Chair of the Mayor's Council. Brad West, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Uh, This is a a request to the federal government to renew its partnership with the region. Is is that a formality or is there a chance that that might not happen?
3: Well, it is a uh, proposal to the Minister of Finance as part of the federal government's budget consultation process. So uh, as they open up... Uh, that window of uh, submission, we wanted to make sure that we were putting forward a very strong uh, request from Metro Vancouver mayors that uh, we need the federal government to come to the table with support uh, to make sure that our public transit system is keeping up with the very significant population growth that our region has already experienced and is going to continue to experience partly because of federal government policy around immigration and other things. So um, we want to take this opportunity to make a very strong call to the federal government that if they're going to look for our region to see increasing number of people call at home, we need them to come to the table with support for the types of services that people rely upon. And public transit is definitely one of those.
0: So the submission also asks specifically for emergency relief funding. And if I'm if I'm correct in this, it's $250 million. Uh, you'd like to see that matched by the provincial government as well. But this says that it's to offset the ongoing financial impacts of the pandemic and to uh, accelerate things. So what does that mean specifically as far as if we're talking about the, the ongoing financial impacts of the pandemic?
3: So there's really two pieces to this. First, uh, the transit agency requires support from uh, provincial and federal government to be able to maintain its existing levels of service. We have seen ridership recovery in TransLink lead all other transit agencies in North America. So we have the highest rate of ridership recovery uh, after the pandemic decimated transit ridership. So it's coming back very quick. And in fact, in many parts of our region, south of the Fraser, in Surrey, and in the eastern parts of our region, in the Tri-Cities and Meadows and Maple Ridge, uh, the, the ridership is already higher than it was before the pandemic. Uh, so we're seeing people uh, not be able to get on the bus because it's full. You know, we're, we're seeing uh, overcrowding. Uh, so first order of business is to get support from the uh, provincial and federal government to be able to maintain our existing level of service. And while that's happening, we want them to come to the table with us uh, to work on a plan to fund what we all really want to focus on, which is the expansion of our system. Because again, our region is going to continue to grow. Uh, It is already behind the eight ball in that it has not kept pace with the growth. And if we want people to have realistic options to go around in this region outside of their vehicle, then we are going to need to see uh, support from other levels of government to move forward with uh, a list of projects and priorities that the mayors have unanimously come together and agreed upon.
0: And when you talk about the list, are you talking about the 10-year plan or are there other projects that are now on that list?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm talking about the 10-year plan. So that would see... Very significant improvements to public transit in every corner of Metro Vancouver, which I think is really important because, it shouldn't matter whether you live in Vancouver or Langley, Port Coquitlam, you know, we're all paying into this system and we all need to see the benefits of it. And so, our 10 year priority plan would uh, see the largest expansion in bus service that our region has ever experienced. It would see new bus rapid transit lines. It would see extensions to the SkyTrain system. It would see us urgently address the needs on, on the North Shore and south of the Fraser, which are uh, becoming very pronounced, uh, along with a number of other projects. So it is, uh, it is a long list, I'll be very honest. It, it, it's a very long list, but it's not a bunch of nice to have, Uh, these are requirements. This region is growing. uh, And if we're going to have options for people, this is the type of investment that's required. These projects uh, are required to be able to support our residents.
0: Are there certain areas, though, when you talk about uh, places where buses are passing by people because they're full or people aren't getting on transit or, or maybe don't have service on uh, certain hours, are there certain areas, though, that, that stand out as being underserviced that you would like to see prioritized?
3: Oh, I think absolutely all the data uh, uh, shows that it is in the south of the Fraser and Surrey and Langley area. Uh, those are areas that are experiencing the most significant population growth in our region uh, and areas that are underserved by transit. Uh, those are the areas that we are seeing that the highest rate of uh, ridership recovery uh, that far exceeds where it was before the pandemic. And so I think that very much rises to the top of the list of of needing to be addressed but um you know there are other areas in our region as well my neck of the woods in the tri-cities and the Mounds, maple ridge again see very high ridership recovery uh, and you don't see enough options for people um but you know again i think this is why the plan that we put forward was able to get the support of every mayor in the region which by the way, it's no small feat. It's not always the case that you can get all the mayors of Metro Vancouver to agree to something. But we have been able to do that. And the reason is because this plan will bring improvements to every corner of the region, uh, from, from the North Shore to Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond, the Tri-Cities, uh, and south of the Fraser. They'll see improvements everywhere. And again, I think that's important and appropriate. We're all paying into this system, no matter where we live and we all deserve to benefit from it.
0: Are there things, so, and especially when asking for this money, which is a lot of money, and asking for the provincial government to match it, and and saying that, and, and it all makes sense, so with immigration, with population growth, we are going to need this these expansions. But when you look at the plan, it also includes things such as the, the gondola to SFU. Uh, under the street section, it says funding to help redesign streets for safer speeds, so they're people-first streets those are nice things to have, but, but are they priorities?
3: Well, just on, on the gondola, you know, I'm like everyone else probably at first when you hear about a gondola, you think, Oh, that's, that's, that's a bit of a head scratcher. But when you look at the case for the gondola, it, it's, it's incredibly strong. There's a high demand for a uh, uh, bus uh, service up to Burnaby mountain into SFU. Uh, and because of, the weather that we experience there are often cancellations and so there's actually a very strong business case uh, that the gondola in that particular location and scenario makes a lot of sense and what it also allows you to do is to take all those bus hours that were uh, devoted to getting people up Burnaby Mountain and to redeploy them throughout the rest of the region so um The the gondola, although it would be new for us in this region, it's used in many places of the world, and it works well, and the business case there is strong. You know, on on the other things that you mentioned, you know, those are very low-cost, minimal-cost items. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of that is just really around um, policy work and making sure that people are safe in our communities and we're designing things uh, as safely as possible. Uh, So that, that would not take away from you know the the meat and potatoes of this plan which is let's expand transit let's give people more options uh and let's uh take steps to reduce congestion because if we don't make these investments uh, it's only going to get worse joe i mean you look the federal government has set a record high target for immigration levels and we know the vast majority of people who immigrate to our country end up in three areas, Metro Vancouver, Metro Toronto, Metro Montreal. And so we are going to see, uh, by most estimates, you know, 50,000 people a year. I mean, that's, that's the size of uh, the city of North Vancouver. We have to have these things in place uh, to be able to accommodate that growth the same way we make sure we need schools and, we need utilities, you know, these are essentials. And so if the federal government is going to establish targets like that, they need to be there with the support to accommodate the people who are going to be coming to Metro Vancouver.
0: When do you need to know uh, the answer to this? Or when do you need to have the funding in place?
3: Well, we have some time. Um, there, there is no immediate uh, threat to service, Uh but we need to get this funding in place as as quickly as possible uh, to be able to ensure that the service that is currently being provided is there through 2025 Um, but again that's only uh, a a part of this um, because main just maintaining our current service is not going to get the job done for people in metro vancouver so then the second piece is for the provincial and federal government to sit down with the mayor's council and hammer out the details of how we fund those 10-year projects that we've just talked about, because that's ultimately where we need to be uh, to provide the options that that people deserve. You know, one last observation I'll make on that is, you know, there is a, a heck of a lot of money that leaves the Metro Vancouver region and goes to um, federal government coffers, and I think our point here is look, this region needs to see reinvestment of its own money by the federal government back into our region. We need to see our fair share of dollars from the federal government uh, to support you know, one of the biggest metro regions in our country. Uh, so that's the message we'll be taking to the federal government uh, over the next several months.
0: All right, Mayor West, we'll have to leave it there, but thanks for your time today. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, First to Call, Child and Youth Advocacy Society has released its annual BC Child Poverty Report Card. And joining us to talk about the findings is Adrian Montani, Executive Director with the Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, a bit of an improvement, uh, in part because of COVID supports. But can you tell us a little bit about what this report card is showing us?
4: Yes. Um, so it's showing we still have 116,500 poor kids in the province in 2020, but it was an unusual year because it was down quite a bit from 2019, thanks to pandemic benefits and top-ups to the Canada child benefits and other emergency measures that both province and the federal government did. So it came down from 18%, uh, you know, almost one in five, to 13, a little over 13% or one in eight in B.C. And this is a trend across Canada. And across all the groups, uh, we, we look at other subgroups underneath sort of all children. And, and all the rates came down. But, of course, you can still see that that's a lot of kids, 116,500 kids were poor in that year.
0: Right. But it does tell us that, that government can do something
4: <laughs> right. when they Be- want
0: to. Because even with the, the rate coming down, presumably once those supports ended, would that rate have gone it, back up?
4: It will. And we can see that uh, in the report, there's a graph that shows... That uh, if there were, had been no p- pandemic benefits, the, the poverty rate in BC in 2020 would have been 20%, which was higher than than the previous year. So it was going up, but the, the benefits made a difference. Similarly, the Canada Child Benefit uh, also made a huge difference. Without that, uh, it would have been 20% in 2020. So the the kind of benefits that governments able to do turn on a dime and give and, or enhance government uh, child benefits made a huge difference yeah but but, but they're all gone now and not not the not the CCB the Canada child benefits not gone but all the the emergency benefits are gone and so we fully expect that the poverty rate will rise again when we get the data for 2021
0: and i know the report has uh, recommendations uh, what would be at the top of the list do you think if, if that would make a difference that would help keep that number down and perhaps even make it lower
4: uh, a number of things, income supports that we've just been I've just been mentioning. So keep those up. Keep some kind of income supports, whether it's through the Child Opportunity Benefit from. Uh, or the um, BC Family Benefit or the Canada Child Benefit, those need to be indexed. And, and well, one of, one of them is the federal one. Is the province doesn't index it yet. So we want those benefits to continue to go to low-income families, and and that income assistance rates or social assistance rates are also raised. So that's the inca- kind of income support. But on the cost side, we also want government to lower the costs for families who are struggling. So that would be childcare, uh, free transit for teens is we're still asking for that, uh, housing, affordable housing. Uh, Protecting rent so that when someone moves, they don't suddenly find themselves in a market that they can't afford uh, to to pay rent in, in all, at all. so Or stay in very bad housing because they can't afford to move. So th- those are some of the biggies.
0: And when you talk about childcare, though, haven't we made a lot of progress there as far as uh, bringing in $10 a day, but also having supports for low-income families? Yes, we have. It, there's been tremendous support. Uh, and, and just as of last December, lowering
4: the fees, uh, again, with the help of pr- uh, federal money as well. Yes, yeah, so, so families are very happy, those that have received that, very happy to see their child care fees come down. The issue is there's still a lot of inequities. Some families, the poorest families, you know, often don't have their ch- their children in licensed child care at all, so they're still not, they, they, they're not, and so they're waiting on a wait list perhaps now, because maybe they could afford it now, um, but then the, it's The system is having trouble growing or the province is having trouble getting the system to grow because of the constraint on staffing. Uh, We need to raise the wages for early childhood educators so that we attract more people into the profession and they can afford to stay there. But yes, it's, it's been a great, great progress so far. We just want to see more.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Adrian, we'll certainly be looking to see where the numbers are and, and hopefully they will stay down as much as possible and go even lower. But thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us some of the updated information.
4: Thank you. I encourage people to read the full report. It's got lots of interesting information in it. Thanks. It's on our website at firstcallbc.org.
0: All right. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks. That is Adrian Montani, Executive Director with First Call Child and Youth Advocacy Society. Again, you can go to that website, firstcallbc.org, and the full report card is there.